The Stages podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of the lands on which our artists and audiences meet. We pay our respect to past, present and emerging elders. We acknowledge the important role that art has played on these lands for thousands of years and feel privileged to work alongside artists continuing the creative practice of one of the oldest surviving cultures in the world. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives... Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. (laughs) Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft and career. Marriott Rupps Donnelly has transferred her extensive experience on stages around Australia to guide the corporate world in effective communication and establishing a firm rapport with their audience. Essentials she knows only too well, garnered from forays into musical theatre, plays and cabaret over several decades. A graduate in languages from Sydney University, Marriott was intended for a career in the diplomatic corps, but fate took a hand when she auditioned and was cast in the musical Godspell. Her career in the theatre was off to a promising start, and subsequent work in children's theatre and pantomime, and with Ashton Circus, extended her theatrical experience. Several other musical productions followed, including The Roar of the Grease Paint, The Smell of the Crowd, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, and Paint a Wagon, before Marriott landed the role of Val in the original Australian production of A Chorus Line. She played another iconic role in the musical theatre canon when cast as the alternate Evita Perón in the original Australian production of Evita. Following Evita, she went on to appear in Company, The Sentimental Bloke, Side by Side by Sondheim, Big River and the national tour of Forbidden Broadway. Taking her experience as a leading actor and teacher of actors, she has combined this knowledge with an astute business understanding to create programs that go to the core of business performance. She develops and expands her client's ability to create personal presence, engage on an emotional as well as an intellectual level, run meetings with authority, pitch persuasively, and to deliver dynamic presentations. Here's my conversation with Marriott Rupps Donnelly. How's your morning been? Really good. I've been um, spraying. <laughs> I've been spraying horticultural oil to get rid of some of the insects that are eating the leaves on a few things. And um, yeah, basically that's what I've done. I, we get up early, and we've got five acres here, and we've planted a lot of um, trees, fruit trees, and a lot of veggies and things. And so that's the first job of the morning always. 
Always, always. always. It, it's that uh, you've just had a. Oh, I, no, it's not really a tree change or a sea change, but you just have relocated to South Australia from New South Wales. Have you enjoyed that change? Oh yeah, and it's a tree plus sea change. We're seven minutes from the beach, uh, so it's got it's got everything really. Um, yes, yeah, yeah. Look, this is a simple life here. It's an easy life here. That that if I put into my my GPS. Uh, how long it's going to take me to get to Adelaide, that's how long it's going to take me to get to Adelaide. There is not the problems of of traffic and 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 holdups that happen in both Sydney and Melbourne. And uh, I mean, to go through COVID here, we didn't isolate that much in South Australia, I must admit. But anyway, you know, our, our little town, it was very, very easy. You trucked into the supermarket, you wore your little mask, you came home, you, you, you walk around the local area, go down the beach, there's no one on the beach. I mean, there is, but, you know, they're like 500 metres away from you. It's it's just an easy, easy life. Um, the York Peninsula, if you just because I haven't said this, the York Peninsula in South Australia is sort of one of the most unknown paradises people in Adelaide know about it but the rest of Australia when they come down to to South Australia they tend to um, drive from Adelaide through to Port Augusta and go down the Air Peninsula because they know about Port Lincoln and they know about Coffin Bay oysters and uh, if uh, and they'll do that and they miss the York Peninsula completely which is a real pity but I'm not complaining (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like bliss and I, I think you know after many uh, well I've only have had 20 years in a big city and I often wonder if there is an expiry date on on living in a, a big city because the the chaos uh certainly takes its toll after a while did you grow up in a big city no I grew up in the country um in where, regional where, Victoria where? um in Ballarat oh my Which... daughter lives in Ballarat really snap <laughs> I'm going to Ballarat for Christmas. <laughs> oh, <big. laughs> um, uh, I'll be home in January, so uh, we might miss each other unless you're staying on for summer. I haven't. Well, no, no, no. We did. We did Sydney summer last season. We missed all the nectarines, <laughs> so we probably won't be staying on for summer. But we may stay through. I have. I have no idea how long we're going to go for. Um, it really depends depends on weather, you know. You you if you know you're going to have extreme bush. Well, we don't get bushfires here, but we get grass fires. Extreme grass fire season. You want to be home, uh, so you can protect everything as much as you can. It's it's the way of living in the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, Marriott Rupps Donnelly, uh, are you still acting? Are you still a gun for hire? Oh, look, am I? No, yes, no. Uh, <laughs> yeah, one can never say uh, no. no I, I, I didn't ever retire. I do. I tend to say that I didn't leave acting, it left me. Uh, I, I did an audition at the beginning of the year for Mitchell Butel, bless his little cotton socks. He found out I was living out here and he asked me to audition for something. I, 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 I don't know. I, I don't know that I was shocking, but I wasn't great because <laughs> I was just so excited about being in a room of highly creative people and and, to, and doing stuff that 
you know, anything that I would have taught students about thinking about your character, what questions do you have about your character, that was all out the window. I was just having such a great time. I didn't get the part, by the way. But um, it, it, it's, I love that. Uh, so I, I don't say no. I I do occasionally do the odd thing, like I I emcee a little bit and I emcee the seafood and shipwrecks dinner that was held down at the bottom of the peninsula last year and apparently we're repeating it again. And that's acting. That's storytelling, telling the stories of the shipwrecks, pulling in an audience together who are all eating really beautiful seafood. And and it was great. It was fabulous. It was like a cabaret show. Uh, I have started to sing again, not publicly, but I am singing again. I don't think I've sung in public for about 15 years. Um, I used to sing sometimes when I spoke because I was working as a speaker. Uh, And maybe maybe it's not that long, maybe it's only 10. But so I don't don't say no. I, I think... I've still got cabaret shows rolling around my head that I really have to write. Whether I I perform them or they go to someone else, I don't know. But um, I I don't think I could say it's over ever. I I just don't think it's in my DNA to say no. And even the work I do now, um, to me, I still think of myself as an actor doing that work. (laughs) Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. Um, There comes a time in every actor's career where there is a bit of a crossroads and and I love how you beautifully defined it you know that the the industry uh sort of gave you up rather than you you giving it up um and it forces you to refocus about what you want to do you still want to remain creative um but because that 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 stage might the stage might be out of reach uh you look for other alternatives which still allow you to uh to be creative and and perform Absolutely. And I, I was asked the other day by a, a client, a, a company, new client, actually, because uh, I, I now work in the corporate sector all the time, teaching presentation skills and all sorts of attendance skills around that. Uh, I was asked if I would uh, give an after dinner speech at their conference. Now, see, an after dinner speech is a very sort of special speech. It's it, it's a performance because everybody's you know, had a few drinks and everybody's partying, never relaxed. So it's it's not like delivering a business presentation at a conference. It's a different sort of thing. And I was absolutely delighted. I thought, wow, that's great. I, I'm I'll look forward to that. Do you still get nervous with um presentations like that or or after dinner oh, yeah. speaking? Yeah. Yes. Yes. I, I don't think that ever leaves. And I was always a very nervous performer, which helps me understand clients really well I have a, um, a number a couple of clients who go through real panic problems when they speak um, these are very senior corporate people but they go through a lot of panic problems some uh, one gets incredibly nauseous the other one just completely blank she can't deal and um, I, I get that I understand that totally I still I get nervous when I speak. I had to, um, I've spoken a couple of times for an organisation called the Global Summit of Women. And I spoke first when they did a conference in Sydney. I was terrified of that. I was so sick. But that was in person. And I've done it a couple of times now for them on uh, online uh, in their, for their conference. I've, I've just said I'm, I'm not going. I wasn't going to get on a plane last year 
and turn up in Lisbon. I missed out, but turn up in Lisbon for the conference. So I they streamed me in. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm online <laughs> like an hour before saying, connect to me, connect to me. Let me know that I've got a connection. Let me know that I'm because they're busy having their conference. Yeah. And I'm just standing there for, for an hour and a half before I actually have to speak, just in not a great state. I do have ways of dealing, of course. That's what you learn, but yeah. Uh, nerves yes <laughs> <laughs> as performers we we often take that for granted I suppose because it's in our wheelhouse we we have to speak publicly all of the time and as you say we learn many coping mechanisms of, of how to uh, how to control and and focus and prepare yourself um but you're obviously working with people who the thought of public speaking is is worse than death yeah, for some of them, yes. And they know they have to do it because it's a, a career um, a step in the, on the career ladder. They have to be able to present well. And so they force themselves into that situation. And what I find usually working with very senior people is that they've got things that they can do that work, so that's what they do. It's a bit like a performer who has you know, one one thing that they know always works, you know, maybe they show emotion by gushing their jaw and and, and or something like that. And 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 that's what happens with these people. And um they <laughs> I have to slowly sort of get rid of that so they become more rounded presenters because one thing one big difference between performers and presenters like people working businesses, corporations your team in a corporation, they know you. They watch you. They know when you're about to deliver bad news or, or good news. They know when you're nervous. They know all the little tells that you've got. Whereas in a performance, you're working to an audience that maybe sees you in your lifetime three times at most and sometimes more, of course, if you're incredibly famous, but then they'll let you do anything. <laughs> the, the, these, these people are watched. And it and it makes them puts them a bit under pressure, much more pressure, I think, yeah. than performers. Though I think singing is the hardest thing you can possibly do in oh, no stand up comedy, and then singing. <laughs> is I that, that, I they have their yeah, bag of they have their bag of tricks, don't they? And um, yeah. by relying on that all the time, it sometimes um, prevents any sort of authenticity because, in a way, they're on automatic pilot. And and if I think if there's a key, and and I believe this too for, for performers and for for corporate people, it it is authenticity. And and then through that, the ability to connect emotionally to people. That, that that's the big thing often missing. And performers get it. I mean, it's performance 101, really, to me. A performer knows that you're not applauded because you're talented. Uh, you're not applauded because you um, you look gorgeous. An audience applauds you because you make them feel something. And in that exchange, they feel the need to give back to you. And so when you're working with speakers or with corporate people, this idea that an audience needs to feel something often hasn't computed. And I have to work a lot on that. And you're in control of it. You yeah. give to them in order, you give them in a way that they feel. And it doesn't mean you have to be all emotional. <laughs> it's 
Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's it's an interesting thing for me, both intellectually and uh, emotionally, to to work in this way. Yeah. Well, Marriott, um, I'm delighted to hear that that you're singing again because you know, in your in your vast career, you've been responsible for uh, some extraordinary and the delivery of some extraordinary and iconic songs and um, talking about don't cry for me argentina as evita peron and tits and arts uh, <laughs> as val in a chorus line um looking back on those many moments in in shows that you've done did, did you have a, a favorite song that you like to perform oh, really? yeah. and i should have thought to... about this shouldn't I? No, a, a favorite song Look, i really love singing tits and arts because it's fun and audiences love it, but it's it's not a song that an ageing diva can sing, really, because it's about a young woman. <laughs> Though I did I did a comedy workshop at, at the Actor Centre a few years ago while I was uh, while I was still teaching there, and and um, I, I threw myself into a stand up comedy thing, and, and we had to do a performance, and one of the things was I sent up tits and ass. I don't know that it worked because the young audience didn't really understand where I was coming from, but that's okay. Um, my favourite song, oh golly, um, it, this is—it's really difficult because I have to think of everything I've sung. I, I loved singing "High Flying Adored." Mm. I, I absolutely adored that in in uh, in Avita. I loved singing that. Um, it just sat in my voice comfortably and it was just a beautiful piece of writing the writing and the lyrics were not great i mean the top note is i was i was hang on high flying i was stuck <laughs> the top note is stuck in the right place or was, was it stuck in the right place at the perfect time oh no i was filled a gap i was lucky so what's that I was, what's that first word? I was slap. That's it. I was slap in the right place at the perfect time. Um, filled a gap. I mean, terrible words to have the top note on. But, um, yeah, I, lo I love singing that. Uh, I've, oh, I did a cabaret show called Don't Cry For Me. Bill Stevens, bless his little cotton socks, got me to do this in, in, um, you know, they used to call them legend shows. I, I wasn't a legend, but he said, you know, what's happened to you? You should do a show. So I went down and did one in his wonderful School of the Arts Theatre. And there was a song I sang called from, from I didn't do the musical, which was from You're a Good Man, Charlie Brown, If Just One Person Believes in You. Now that song I really adore, but it wasn't in a, a big musical. Um, I can't pick. I, there's been so many wonderful, wonderful songs. When you do something like Side by Side by Sondheim, you get to sing a whole lot of songs. Uh, when you do a cabaret show, you get to sing a whole lot of Sondheim. Most of us do. So so you have that the, the, the joy of that. Don't Cry For Me um, is always going to sit in my DNA. I got to do a Vita twice, which I think is a real privilege. The first time in the original national tour when I was the alternate to Jennifer Murphy and I went on um, every week playing a Vita uh, and I was 28. The second time was 11 years later and I did it for the West Australian Music Theatre Society. 
I saw that production. Oh, did you? Yes, that was oh. my that was my first year at Whopper. So um, uh, it was on in oh, town. Really? So we got to see it. Yeah, yeah, it was glorious. It was glorious. With, with the wonderful, with the wonderful uh, Paul Peacock, who I thought was just magnificent as Che. Yeah. You know, um, he's a he's. I'm still sort of in contact with him on Facebook. You know, bless him. I think he's wonderful. And and Robinson, Yvette Robinson, is that her Yvette, name? Yvette, yes, the, yes, the mistress. The alternate. Yeah, the, and and the, the mistress. And the alternate. She was wonderful and she went on. She's had quite a good career in London, I understand. She was wonderful. She had But for extensive. me to have the sorry, yes. Extensive career in the West End, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um I I um I think that was a real privilege. And and to have John Milson ask me to do that, and I was that much older. I remember doing Buenos Aires. <laughs> and I was singing my little heart out and I'm dancing around and this thought went through my brain which was I am like almost 20 years older than most of these dancers and I'm up front dancing with them and I'm the stupid idiot singing as well <laughs> and, I, and I thought gosh how am I going to get through this but it was it was an extraordinary thing to come back and look at it and um yeah it was Somebody, oh golly, and I can't even think of her name. I should have. There's a wonderful actress I worked with when I did. I did a whole lot of work in Perth in 1987, somewhere around there. And I'll come back. But she said to me, "I saw you in the original Marriott, and I saw you this time. And I have to say, you're a better 16-year-old now, a Visa 16-year-old, than you were when you first did it." And I thought, well, that's that was lovely. I thought that's experience, isn't it? Great. It teaches you something about performance yeah. and acting. Um, and it was it was just a great thing, and a great thing to be back in the old match too, um, which Beautiful has been refurbished. I did my first show there. Godspell. I did Godspell. I did Godspell there, which was um, wonderful. Wonderful. So are you a, per a Perth girl? Because uh, look no, at no, no. you've done a lot of things in Perth. No, 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 no. Um, I lived in Perth for a little while. I met my husband in Perth, uh, but I I was on a tour. We were probably about the fifth production of Godspell by the time I got in. And um, we did, we toured uh, New South Wales and Victoria, and then we went to Perth and we toured Western Australia. And that was my very first show, and I got to be in the match. And that was when I realised, talk about nerves, as we did before, that I would always have my um, my uh, five-minute call in the loo. I'm always on the loo, <laughs> the five-minute call. <laughs> and um, <laughs> um, But the match is, um, yeah, it's got a very fine piece of my heart, that, that old theatre. It was It was wonderful. Wonderful. And um, the hole in the wall. A lot of work with with that company there, and um, and Ray Omidai and 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 those folk. Now, my second daughter was nine months old when we went to Perth. My husband went back to Perth to study, which gave me permission, in a way, <laughs> gave me permission to work in Perth because I wasn't coming from over east to take everybody's work, which is is I understand, and 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 a very. Um, uh, important factor for, for Perth actors that you can't keep, it's like us bringing Americans over to, to work in Australia. You can't always bring actors from elsewhere to work in Perth. 
but because I was living there, I I auditioned for Ray, and he he um he allowed me to do so many wonderful things and supported me. Um, things that I would never be allowed to do in Sydney. In Sydney, I was a music theatre actor. In Perth, I became an actor. And I really do believe, and this was post-Avita, that I became, I've started to become the actor that I probably was meant to be. I, um, my, I have wonderful memories of, of um, the seagull. <laughs> when I think about it, um, he, Ray let me, he cast me as Arcadna. I was in my 30s. I was far too young. And I said to him, Ray, I'm too young to play Arcadna, which is the central actress role in Seagull. And he said to me, I want you to be able to say, um, I could play a girl of 15, that we would look at you and say, yes, but maybe not next year. And he, oh, he he allowed me so much freedom to play, and and the wonderful Robert the Mecklenburg was playing Trigora, um, and I, I still love him dearly. I played opposite him a lot in that season, and he was wonderful, um, and just working with him was magnificent. And and I know there was there is an actress in Perth, a very clever woman who I had seen when I first went there at 21 with Godspell, a woman called Jenny McNay. You would know who I'm talking Absolutely, about, Jenny McNay. Yes. And she had desperately wanted a partner. And I get that. She was of the age where she thought, if I don't do it now, you know, this is it. This is my moment. And she was in the play playing one of the older characters and she came up to me at the end of opening night and she said, I think you're wonderful. She said, I wanted this role, but I think you are wonderful. And and I, you know, I cried. I think that was for an older actress to be that generous when a younger actress had walked in. And the younger actress, not from the local community either, had walked in and taken the great role. But there was other things, Ray. We did a Hamlet which Robert von Mecklenburg was also in, and um, um, at, at once he it was it was almost a horrendous production rehearsal process because we didn't ever get a complete dress rehearsal, not 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 without stopping for tech, and we didn't get a complete tech rehearsal without stopping for acting notes and things like that. So. Um, Poor old Richard, and I'm, his name now, his last name escapes me, but we'll find it and I'll send it to you and you can put it in the thing, the names the that I can't remember. <laughs> um, his brother is a very famous actor, Richard, who was playing Hamlet. How he got through, because he was really great, um, how he got through not getting a full run. But I remember on on the sort of what was supposed to be the dress rehearsal, how, how uh, not how, it's how Prince, isn't it? Ray said to me, and he'd given us a beautiful universe to work in. He said he he had said to me, as um, Gertrude, you you know you've done the wrong thing, and you know the way the universe works, and you know it's all going to fall apart on you. You're just hoping it doesn't. So you know that. So that's in the back of your mind the whole time that things are going to go fall apart because the uni you mess around with the universe. There's ramifications all the way through. And of course, she'd had an affair with her husband's brother, and um, she didn't know he murdered him at that point but um 
she said to me at the point where Hamlet is saying, you know, look, look here, look at the ghost. Just before the dress rehearsal, he just said, I see the ghost. Now, as a direction, that was extraordinary. So I'm I'm in this scene and Hamlet is saying, look, look. And, and I, I, I looked up and I saw the ghost. <laughs> and I screamed and I ran and I lost my shoes. And um, my only note after that production was from, from Ray was, the Queen of Denmark will lose her shoes every performance. <laughs> and I thought it was it was a wonderful thing because it it gave me it, it to connect that to the things going wrong in the universe and that yes she believes there's a ghost and yes she sees it is just extraordinary. Uh, um, he wonderful was stuff. a he great was director. A I did well. You'd love this. I did my first pro um, job out of Whopper. Um, uh, a play called The Judgment of Paris. There were two of us, me and Robert Van Mecklenburg, and Ray directed it. <laughs> so there you go, two of your favourites. I was I was quite exhausted uh, in Perth because I had two young children. Mum was still a mum was just started school and mum was a, a baby. And my husband was working. He was studying and working, and I was doing rep. Um, and also when we had breaks, I did. a uh, play at the Playhouse. I did a couple of things at the Playhouse, actually. But it was an extraordinary season to be part of. You know, I got to do Side by Side by Sondheim with Jill <laughs> and bless him, the wonderful DJ Foster. Um, and they did talk about bringing that, our version of Side by Side to Sydney. Frosty wanted to bring it to Sydney. But the three of us decided that the Perth newsreader, ABC newsreader, Peter Holland, had done the narrator in that production. And he was wonderful. He was really good. And we, Jill, DJ and I said, well, we'll go to the Eastern States to do this production, but we want to take Peter. And they refused. They wanted to put in, you know, like they did, a celebrity narrator. A marquee, marquee name. A marquee. Yes, that's it. That's the word. Marquee. Yeah. A marquee narrator. <laughs> and, you know, this was our little hole-in-the-wall production that, was unmiked. It was wonderful. It was um, it was such a good production to be part of. And Kevin Johnson, of course, um, choreographed it. It was just and Ray directed. Ray had the best time. He he directed it, and for him to direct the musical was a really joyful thing. <laughs> Great stuff. Um, as a as a Whopper boy, um, I was curious to see that you were a, a member of the advisory board that developed the the BA course. Uh, in musical theatre yes. at, at WAPA. Um, tell me about that and the, the process that was involved with that, because I imagine it would be very, very focused. Yeah. I, was, I, I wasn't I was on it all the time because I, I left, unfortunately, but um, I had been teaching at WAPA. I had taught as part of the, there was a part-time course or part-time or two-year courses, and I had taught as part of that and um, I was on the advisory board, gee, it's a long time ago to remember, um, largely just to put in a performer, a musical performance perspective on yeah. a degree course. Degree courses are challenging. I've, I've had to deal with a couple of them now on, on advisory boards and, and uh, degree, degree courses for performers are challenging because the, it puts the onus on the academic side and you have to put in, make sure that there's a lot of theatre history and uh, 
of those things that can be assessed by essay. Uh, and and um, performance is still assessed, but there needs to be that sort of very theoretical academic side. You have to know your history, but um, it really put pressure on it, which then takes time or pressure away from the more performance-based skills, which means everybody in the end works longer hours, I think. Uh, students work longer hours to get the performance-based skills in. It may have changed now, but I I remember having discussions around that, how we manage that. Yeah, but, I, rem um, I, rem I remember long days. I We'd only... start at um, 8 o'clock and, and be leaving the place, you know, after 6. Yes, yeah. And I, in fact, got into trouble <laughs> for that when I was teaching at um, Uni of Western Sydney, which was at that point Nepean CAE, which is where I started my teaching career. This was 1980, earlier, 1980, 1979. Um, I remember being, I was part of a, the um, Equal Opportunity Board, as they were called then, and I remember suggesting there was a, an older actor who auditioned and, uh, to get in the course, and you'd never say this, and I said it as a, as a mother, and out of the goodness of my heart, you do realise we'll be working, you'll be working into the night. And she had children, we'll be working into the night. And that's all I said, but she reported me. And, um, you know, and I, <laughs> the Equal Opportunity Board, of which I was a member, <laughs> pulled me up and said, you can't say that, Marriott. And I said, no, I do apologise. I realise that now. But I was doing it out of the goodness of my heart that she was prepared. She got in, that she was prepared to deal with those sorts of hours. Mm. You know, she couldn't suddenly turn around and say, oh, well, I have to go home at this hour. So yeah. um, oh, you could, could never say that now. You could never ask that question. And I agree with that completely. But, you know, I was learning along with everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes forewarned is forearmed. So um, Yes, yeah. yes. And I, look, I know now. <laughs> But that was, you know, how many years ago? 20, 40 years ago that was. Wow. Yeah, that were the days. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about running away and joining the circus because you two oh. with Ashton Circus for a while, didn't you? Yeah, that was the first career, the first um, year of my career. I had this opportunity. They were doing a pantomime. Ashton's and, and a theatrical group were doing a pantomime called The Clown That Lost His Circus. Um, in conjunction with Ashton Circus. And uh, I auditioned to dance because it was the only time in my life I've ever worn, um, um, you know, sequins and feathers. <laughs> but I auditioned as a dancer. And Margaret Davis, bless her cotton socks, she was in that production and I've known her forever since then. Um, and she's still doing extraordinary work and writing so much. It was wonderful um, because we got to be in in amongst all the circus animals and watch the way these circus people work. I, I think I work hard. Yeah. But these people, they, they'd finish, the Ashtons would finish the performance and they'd be out selling fairy floss and selling tickets. And, and on Sundays, I think it was some Saturdays, we did three shows. So they would be looking after the animals, selling stuff, um, tearing tickets at the door, then go and get changed, then perform, and and three times. And in, in the heat in that tent, in the middle of the summer, um, in the heat, it was unbelievable. I lost huge amounts of weight without even trying. I was really thrilled. But um, the... <laughs> 
But then, but I was, I got to work with Slim to Grey. And then Colin Croft took over from Slim. And that um, was the first time I ever worked with Colin. Keith yeah. Little was in it. Anita Roberts. Yeah, that's it. Keith, and who was the other one? Anita Roberts and Anna Russell. Oh, yes, 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 yes. And Anna. Oh, bless her cotton socks. Yes, Anna was there. Um, and, of course, I'd seen Anna in Little Night Music. She was, um, I was usheretting. I was at uni during a Little Night Music and I got to usherette the opening at Her Majesty's in Sydney. You know, Never. it's just gone, just gone 50 years since, um, in, in November it was, since it opened and, and Little Night Music premiered. Well, I watched that show every night. Oh, my gosh. And I, you know, I fell in love with them all. I thought they were all magnificent. And it is a great pleasure to know, or a great joy to me to know that I still know Jill and I still know David Gilchrist and I still know Geraldine and I still know Tim Page. I never really met Bruce Barry, but, um, and, 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 and Annie Griggs, um, I worked with in Annie. And I still, I got to be part of them, you know. I was a kid from uni with this great big dream and watching this show every night. I had started to learn singing, but I never, ever believed it was possible for me. And and to work in that theatre, it's so, so sad that it no longer exists. Um, but to work in that theatre where they were um, and watching that production every night, Usher Reading from up in that appalling circle of that theatre, well, it was gods without calling it gods, and it was so steep. But, um, yeah, anyway, I jumped, didn't I? I jumped from uh, working with somebody. Um... Anna Russell in um, <laughs> the, the, the Clown oh, Anna that Russell, Lost Circus. Yes, in The yeah. Clown That Lost His Circus. The Blessed, and then Doris Fitton took over in, in uh, Little Night Music and she had an earphone. And I remember watching the stage manager who was delivering her lines through the earphone go grey overnight. Poor man, Peter, poor man. Um, but it was um, Anna... It, it was so much fun. It was so much fun. And we got told, uh, the, those of us in the show got told in the end um, that we had to stop talking to the elephants because they were dragging their, they were um, chained to a great big trailer, heavy trailer, and they were starting to drag it towards our caravan. It was just an incredible experience. And I will never, ever think I work too hard again, ever. <laughs> I, I just thought of a, the name for your autobiography, should you wish to write one, Don't Talk to the Elephants. Don't Talk to the Elephants, yeah. <laughs> Don't Talk to the Elephants. And I, I, look, I, I love them. They were such beautiful animals, but I have great respect for the fact that one of them, Abu, the big one, had sat on somebody and killed them. Right. Um, so I was very aware of that. So you had a dream to perform on the stage, but you studied languages at Sydney University. Was Was that to get something to fall back on or? Well, there was a number of reasons. I was good at languages. And, and, and look, I grew up in a family that got language. My father is um, was born in Holland. He went to Indonesia when he was three and he grew up in Indonesia. My oma and opa read in Dutch, German, French and English. And um, my father had a smattering of uh, those languages, but he didn't ever speak them, but he he did speak Pata Malay, which was the precursor in Indonesia to Bahasa Indonesia. And um, he and my mum loved French. My mum was a Francophile. So for me, once I realised I could do languages, 
and I, I just got them. Then I just kept picking them up, really. as uh, I did French and German at school. Um, my language master at school, I had the most, let me step back, I had the most wonderful French teacher, Coralie Egan, and I have to mention her because I never saw her again, and I just hope it goes out to the universe that she did so much for me. She understood, as I talk about my particular form of neurodiversity, I'm energetic, uh, I'm distracted easily, and the way I focus is to keep, you know, I take massive notes and I keep doing stuff. So I used to knit under the desk at school and uh, through lots of subjects. And she knew. And she said, Mariette, I know you're knitting. Bring it up. Stop hiding under the desk. You'll drop stitches. And she said, I know you can listen and knit. And she also allowed me to eat. You know, at lunchtime, I used to buy a whole lot of lollies at the canteen. And she, I, I'd sneak them into my mouth. She said, for heaven's sake, put them on your desk and eat them. And she allowed me, she gave me permission to keep doing that. But if I distracted other people, she came down on me like a ton of bricks. Yeah. You know? And it was in this big voice. She'd suddenly go, Mariette! And I'd jump. And that was it. That was all she did. But she was also a great supporter. She wanted me to do all sorts of things. And, and along with her and the language master, who spoke 14 languages, Mr. Horacek, they kept wanting me to... Um, do more languages, and I did coach. They kept on passing through to me young uh, year, what um, well, the first years of high school, year seven and year eight students who were doing French to coach in French. So I was earning money at school coaching French. But I, a university, I picked up Italian and Indonesian as well, and I did as part of the Indonesian a bit of Dutch. So I did all these languages because I could because I was already singing and I was singing more classical singing. So I was singing in French and German and Italian. And because my mother thought I was going, heading towards the diplomatic corps, but I was always heading to theatre. I didn't know how, but I was always heading there. And to me, going to university and doing things I knew I could do meant that I could do other things. So I joined the Gilbert and Sullivan Society and I sang for the French Society and I did those things and I started to explore performing. And that's the and first that, time that you started to to sing, to take singing lessons? First time I started to sing in public. I actually <laughs> I actually um, uh, blackmailed my mother into getting me singing lessons. My... When I was at high school, my last year of high school, I sang in the school talent quest and um, I won a couple of things. I danced as well because, and um, a woman came to me later and said, look, you, you have a voice. Maybe I should go back and tell you how I found I had a voice. This will make me cry. I was a classic kid in who always danced around the lounge room. You know, it's the story. It's the story. Sang and danced along to Barbara Streisand and Shirley MacLaine and Jeanette Little, uh, Jeanette MacDonald and um, all of them, all the wonderful singers, Julie Andrews, and always dreamed. Um, and then I was in my final year of high school and we were going to do a musical. We were going to do Carousel. And I turned up because I could dance and I, and I had... The director was Mr. Hamilton. He was the uh, English master. And he, I had already done a production with him of Peter and the Wolf, in which I played Peter. And um, 
he and I'd done a little little bit in a Gilbert and Sullivan Pirates of Penzance. I just my my big role in that was to scream and run across the stage. But uh, I I did um, I auditioned for Carousel. Well, I turned up anyway to dance, and he got us all singing "If I Loved You." And he came around and listened, and he pulled five of us out. Now, three of those girls I knew were singers. They were having singing lessons. And um, I will cry. And um, he um, slowly, without my knowing, shut each one of them up. And I was left there on my, my own singing, If I Loved You. And I sang, sorry. <laughs> That's a beautiful I moment. Actually, I actually sang and he gave me the role. Um, I spent the afternoon in the in the loo, in the girls' toilets, just sobbing my eyes out. I couldn't go back to class. But um, the unfortunate thing about that was that he got sick and um, he we didn't end up doing the production. But that was when I I somebody said to me, you've got to have a singing lessons. And I blackmailed my mother. I <laughs> Because she didn't want me to perform. She really didn't. And um, bless her, she always supported me, but she didn't want me to do it. She, um, I, I, my, my, my ballet teacher had a, a, a troupe that used to dance at St George Lee's Club, you know, feathers, <laughs> feathers and sequins. And uh, I said to mum, I can always go and dance with Beryl to earn the money to pay for my singing lessons. Well, that was the last thing my mother wanted, and I think I probably knew that, so she paid for my singing lessons. And that was when I, um, and that singing teacher said, there's auditions for Godspell, you should go. Yeah, great. Um, Mr Hamilton, was was it, who was directing? Mr Hamilton, yeah, Mr John Hamilton was my English master who was directing Carousel. It's so important for young people, isn't it, to have those those champions and and, and a vote of confidence so so early to to, uh, support your own um, development of a... A belief in yourself yes. so that, that you can do it so this is what you do peter yeah yeah i and, and i don't take that lightly i i see that as an enormous privilege to um to 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 encourage young people to to perform especially if you see that glimmer of 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 talent and it's a funny thing that you see um i used to adjudicate for the mcdonald challenge and um singing pop singing contemporary singing but i remember seeing a little girl who came on stage and like me with glasses and sort of a little sort of mouse of a little girl, like, well, I think I was loud, but I was also a little bit mousy. And um, she came on stage and she couldn't open her mouth to sing. So I got up. I don't know if I was allowed to. So I got up and I went and sat beside her and I said, um, and I, I chat and talked to her. I, I talked to her and I said, you really want to do this, don't you? And she said, yes. And I said, you really want to sing? And I said, well, look. How about I just sit here and hold your hand and, and you begin? And so she began to sing. And, um, you know, when a dream is that big, it's very hard to get past everything to try and grasp it. And um, she I don't know what happened to her, but she sang and she was shaky, but she sang and and... I once you I thought once you do this you'll be fine because I remember when I sang for the French Society which was probably the first bit of big singing I did I sang in they did Le Malade Imaginaire um, and there was a little singing piece and I sang in that 
That first night, I could hardly sing. My voice was shaking. I could sing it in rehearsal, but my voice was shaking so badly, and and it was it was horrible. But we did three performances, and progressively, I got better. So I understood this. And I don't know if that little girl ever became a performer, but you know, if if you can do that, I will always. If somebody rings me and says, "Look, my daughter wants to be a performer," you know, will you talk to her about what she can? I will always say yes. And whether they have the talent to work professionally or whether it's just going to be a hobby, which brings them enormous satisfaction, um, it's not our place to to burst any bubbles. Um, it's it's a, it's a journey that the individual must go on and and work out um, whether they Absolutely. have that talent or not. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely, and and also you don't always recognise talent. I I, I think um, nothing succeeds like persistence. I know of people who are really famous who, when they first started their singing lessons, didn't have anything like a voice. But they worked and they worked and they worked and they understood technique. And look, you can't always tell. Bayork Lee said something to me once. Bayork came out with a chorus line, for people that don't know. Um, Bayork was part of the directing group for a chorus line. She was the, in the original cast and she still, bless her cotton socks, directs productions all around the world of a chorus line. She holds on to that legacy and she takes it forward. She, um, when I was doing Evita, they were talking about doing another production of a chorus line and she was out here and she came to see me and she said something. And at the time I really rejected it, but I get it now. She said, the trouble with you, Mariette, is you don't want the cherry. And I said, yes, 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 I do. I understood what you want, the cherry on the top. You are not willing to give up everything for this. And I, I said, yeah, no, I do, I do. And I'd already gotten married by that stage. And she was right. I would not give up. There are other things in this world that are more important. We do a lot as performers. We give people great joy. I loved it and I still love it. And whenever I get a chance to get in front of an audience, I really love that exchange. And it's um, it's a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing to help people feel their lives, which I think is what we do, and to tell their stories. But it's not everything. For some people it is, and I get that and I honour that and, and go for it, go for it. But I know there are other things in my life that are more important. And I, I have to, and even though that hurts me a little bit and it would make me want to cry again, I have to acknowledge that. Yeah, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> um, so A Chorus Line, how, how did you find out about this new juggernaut musical coming to Australia and that there possibly could be a role for you? Tony Sheldon. He told me. Uh, we were doing Roar of the Grease Paint, Smell of the Crowd, which was such a wonderful, fun production to do with Colin Croft and, a, and an amazing Adelaide man, South Australian man called Roger Newcomb, who was a really great voiceover artist. And Sheldon was in it and I was in it. And bless her, Carmen Tanti, just extraordinary. She's no longer with us. Carmen was in it, and um, there was uh, little Jilly Howard and Alex Kovacs and Kate. Kate came in later, and of course, bless her, Rosalie, Rosalie Howard, who had played No No Nanette, Nanette in No No Nanette. 
And we all did this wonderful production and we toured it to Brisbane. I don't know that Rosalie came, so I took over her role when we went to Brisbane. But we were in a room, somebody's room, probably Sheldon's room in the hotel in Brisbane, and Tony Sheldon said, there's this great new musical. You have to audition for it. And that was the first I heard of it. Um, and so I, you know, I really wanted to audition for it. And um, I think when the auditions came along, was I, uh, was I doing Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band on the road? I think I might have been at that time. And I remember I was a bit worried that the production might continue and I was in a 14-month contract and I might have to try and get out of it. Um, but anyway, I, I don't remember the details around that. But um, I. Um, yeah, when the auditions came along, oh, golly, it was it was extraordinary. I mean, I'm sure people have told you about the audition already. It was a, it was a shocker. <laughs> it was at the the Seymour Centre, wasn't it? Yep, yep. For for us in Sydney, it was at the Seymour Centre, and we turned up, and they eliminated immediately. There were so many people, and they eliminated down to thirty by just getting us to do a time step and a double pirouette. And they just cut people. And the times that you didn't get to sing, you didn't get to, you had to time step and double pirouette. If you couldn't do that, and later I realised if you didn't look right, and this was important because it was part of honouring the original people. If you didn't look right, you didn't get past that. And then, then we sang, I think, and they cut us, no, then we danced. And then we said, oh, I can't remember the order anymore. But they kept cutting. They kept cutting. And um, and it was down to seven on that first day. We were down to seven at the end. I remember Pamela Gibbons just saying, look, I've had enough. Can we go home? Um, it was just too hard. And it, it was. It was really confronting. Uh, and then we um, had to come back. I think was it the next day or the next week? I can't remember. And we went in and we had to read again. That's right. We had to read again and read them. I had to read Val's monologue. I knew I was up for Val. And we I read that role. And then they lined us, they lined us up. Everybody went in. They lined us up along the line. And on either side of me were two other people I knew were up for my role. And then they did what they did in the show. And I'm sure people have told you about this. They called people forward and they said, um, can you, we'd like to talk to you outside. And um, they took them outside and told them they didn't have the roles. And the, the people that were left were the ones who had the roles. And, and the interesting thing was that Karen Johnson who was the most magnificent dancer, she was put outside. And I thought, because they were the understudies too. Some of them were understudies. And I, when she went outside, I remember thinking, um, now this is, well, she has to be in there. She's amazing. Uh, and, and I hope I'm right about this. Karen, Karen might say I'm wrong. Uh, but anyway, um, of course, she understudied Cassie initially, 
and then took over the role. Uh, and she was fantastic. But they came back in, Bayok came back in, and then she just stood and looked at us and she said, you've all got the roles, you're on the line. And then when we all reacted, of course, she said, remember that. I want you to remember that. You've got to do that every night. It sounds like that whole audition process was a, a psychological preparation for, for yes. the actors to to experience what they would be <laughs> playing with those characters eight shows a week. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And um, it was, um, yeah, yeah, it was, um, uh, well, it certainly <laughs> took its toll, you know, um, it's and I think they were watching all our reactions and, and there were some serendipitous things about it. When I I wanted to stand out, of course, and I had this leotard I'd got from Blocks. It was a sample, which was all black and white stripes. And I wore that. But I think the standout thing was I didn't have J shoes, I had little um Dunlop volleys. But that morning I couldn't find any shoelaces, and all I could find were two big pink satin ribbons. So I tied my volleys, my shoes, up with these two big pink satin ribbons. And I just, those things, I think, because I were looking for people who would be right for the person, the original person, the original story, I think those, those things made a difference. And it was totally serendipitous. No. <laughs> thank, thank you to pink satin ribbons. I've never asked by all that. Maybe I should. But you obviously had the dance skills as well, but 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 shows like you know Sergeant Peppers and uh, Ashton Circus and Godspell, they're not really testing your your dance skills. You you must have been quite a competent mover. I was competent. Yeah. I would never call myself. I, I was an atypical dancer. I was a hoofer. I was not not a ballerina. I could do ballet. I love ballet, um, and I did ballet all the way through. I, all the way through high school and even while I was at university, I was still going to class and I did modern and jazz and all those things. But I wasn't a dancer dancer. I was no ballerina, not not by any stretch of the imagination. And I never have could have been. I didn't have the body for it. I didn't have the super flexibility for it. Um, but it was enough to get me over the line. There were things I could do. If they'd have asked me to do a whole lot of adagio and lift my leg up beside my ear and hold it forever, no, I could not have done that. But I could run and leap quite well and get my legs spread apart reasonably well. Um, I could, I could, um, I could do the jazz routine. I could do a double pirouette. I could time step. Now this is interesting. I only learned to time step step in the clown that lost his circus. There were tappers, a couple of girls who were great tappers in that show, and I'd always wanted to learn tap, but my mum said no. I think she aligned tap with vaudeville and tap and, you know, tappers were. So I, I didn't get to learn tap. So these girls in Climate Lossy Circus taught me how to time step. And then I think we did a couple of little things in Roar of the Grease Paint. Um, Doug Kinsman was the director, blessing, wonderful man, and he, he, um, he did a, we did a little tap routine on a wonderful day like today. We did some tap steps. And so I went in and when they said, you know, do a time step, it was like, oh, thank goodness I could do a time step. <laughs> and I did a I did a time step. Um, but I mean, life is serendipitous, isn't it? It's just things, things just happen and it's almost like, I mean, I don't believe there's a plan, but I do think that everything you do in your life just builds into what happens next. 
And I look at what I do now and I'm using everything, absolutely every skerrick of knowledge I have about movement and, and body language and singing and acting and, and how you construct a play, how you construct, um, you know, for presentations, how, everything, every bit of knowledge I have is, is I'm using now, which is amazing. <laughs> Well, a season of a chorus line certainly stood you in good stead for um, Evita because uh, there's a, a big dance component in that show as well. Um, tell us about the, the audition process for Evita. Uh, now, my audition process for the role of Evita was different to the other people who auditioned, my understanding. I was in Melbourne. What was I doing in Melbourne? I was did, you have an, there. did you have an ensemble track as well or, or you were just uh, uh, the alternate off stage. It's a horror for me. It's a horror story on this level. Um, I'll, I'll explain. Um, I auditioned for Evita in Melbourne. Johnny Robbo, John Robertson, who was a, I, I was a, a really lovely supporter of mine, uh, which I didn't realize how how much I have to honour that. He um, he said, "Look, you're a bit tall for what Howe's looking for." So he said, "Wear flat shoes and sing something high." So I sang. Golly, I sang Walls of My Heart, I think. Um, and uh, I went in and um, they got me to sing a couple of things uh, and Hal talked to me and got me to sing a few things, but that was it. The next thing I knew, I was being offered the alternate. So I was never considered for the first of Evita and I didn't realise that. But apparently there had been auditions in Sydney and there'd been a big group of people going for Evita in Sydney. Maybe I wasn't considered or I, I don't know. Anyway, um, so I was the alternate um, and I signed the contract. And, yeah. and then I was told that I was going to be dancing in the chorus and doing all the bits, bits of chorus stuff which was a bit shocking for me because it meant in rehearsals I was I couldn't watch Avis rehearsals. They were rehearsing in one room and I was trying to learn dancing and, and things. But apparently it came about because the alternate in Los Angeles had said, I'm a, um, I'm a dancer. I'm going to get bored doing this, hanging around, doing nothing, except coming on to sing the first opening little thing which the alternate Evita sings with 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 the first Ava, and and to walk across the balcony in the dream sequence, or when she's dying playing Evita, she said, "I I I'm going to get bored, so can I can dance? Can I dance?" And so that sort of became the thing. You have no idea, Peter, how damaging it is to your psyche to be up on the balcony singing "Don't Cry for Me, Argentina." And then in the matinee, and then the evening performance, be down on the floor screaming out, Avita, Avita, Avita. Yeah. Now they call the Avita thing the curse of the white dress, that people believe the you get so involved in it that you believe it. I don't know. But to me, it was shocking because you had to gather everything to be that woman who, that belief in that woman. And then you had to drop it away. Now, there's look, shows like Avita rely on their chorus. They're not, 
Don't Cry For Me, Argentina is a nice song, but it's not the great song. It's the setup for that song that makes it amazing. It is the chorus screaming for Evita. It's the violin, the dead silence before she enters, and then the violin. All that, it's set up. If the, if the chorus do not do their job, the ensemble, I should say, if the ensemble are not doing their job, it doesn't work. And that goes for the whole way through the show. A new Argentina is the ensemble. The best numbers in the show, I honestly believe, are the soldiers and the aristocrats. That wonderful, those two beautiful pieces, pieces of ensemble work. And um, that um, the wonderful art of the possible, which Perron does with the chairs, the two extraordinary pieces. But it's the ensemble that carries that show. So it's not about being part of the ensemble that was the problem. It was what was happening to me watching somebody else do what I had to believe was my role when I was playing it. And um, that that was really, I don't think they ever did that. I don't think they, they didn't do that to Maria Mercedes when she was the alternate in Sunset Boulevard to Debbie Byrne, thank God. I don't think they've ever done it again. I don't know that anybody's ever um, thought about it. I don't know that in London at Mighty Webb, was dancing in the court, in the ensemble while Elaine Page was playing it. But for me, it was it was really quite damaging. And of course, um, the uh, originator of the role, um, Paddy Lapone, came out for a season in Sydney. Yes, <laughs> I'd taken over. I'd taken over the role. They'd made the announcement. I had taken over the role. Um, Pretty much after opening night. Oh well, no, no not quite. Um, we split it. Jenny took some time off. I took over the role. Then she came back, but she was still struggling a little bit to sing. And then finally, I had taken over the role. But by that stage, I was pregnant. I hadn't planned on getting pregnant. I didn't, you know. I mean, this is the biggest role of my life, and you know, here I am about to have a baby. Um, I remember going to Jill and saying, oh, Jill, what, you know, and she said, darling, it'll be the best thing that's ever happened to you. Don't worry about it. It'll be fine. Um, Because Jill was travelling with us sometimes because Kevin Johnston was in the show, so uh, Jill Perryman was travelling. And anyway, I, (laughs) it was a little bit difficult because when I got married anyway, which I had done partway through the season, um, I'd gone into the office of, it was Johnny Robbo. He might hate me for saying this. I'm sorry, John, but it really affected me. Um, And I said I was getting married. And he said, well, there goes your career then, doesn't it? And my little brain went, not on your nelly, you know. No, getting married doesn't affect my career. But he doesn't realise, and he doesn't know, and it's not his fault, it's mine. But that disenfranchised me for years later. I was working to prove to people that I could have children and I could be married and I could still work. Um, But anyway, so that had already happened, and then I had to go in and say I was pregnant. And I said, look, I'll work, uh, the baby, I'll be five months by the time the baby's, by the time my contract finishes, so I will work to the end of my contract. And um, and then um, after that, they brought out Paddy. Now, <laughs> I could say, look, they would have let me take over the role. 
and um, if I wasn't pregnant, I'd completely take over the role and Patty wouldn't have come out. I could that could have that could have happened. But you know, I know this business. Um, they weren't selling. Um, the tickets weren't selling really well. Um, you had real big guns involved in this production, like Robert Stigwood and um Edgley's. Edgley's, Edgley's. Um, they were involved in this production. Um they worked a lot internationally, and and they, you know, the discussions would have been very high level. They they may they may have thought they couldn't sell me. I look, I have no idea, but I was pregnant, so it either made it easy for them or it made it harder for them. I have no idea, but they brought out Patty, and she was wonderful. But the interesting thing was when I rehearsed, I had to rehearse into the role. When they were rehearsing her into the Australian cast, I was still doing the evening performances. I was still doing all, I was doing, at one stage I was doing seven a week, which is unheard of, and the understudy went on for one. But um, I was still doing most of the majority of the performances. But what was happening is, what was happening, I'd, I'd come in early and run through with the musical director, Peter Casey, and the, and um, what, what, what had changed in what we were doing and with the guy who directed who was directing Paddy, who was one of Hal's people, um, and what had changed. So I was, in the end, doing half her performance and half mine, which was, you know, I mean, you just don't treat performers. I'm sorry, you don't treat performers like no. this. This is, yeah. And, you know, I, I did it because I'm that, I, I was fairly accommodating, I think, and because it was a challenge and I like a bit of a challenge, so I did it. But there were things, there were things I really learnt from her which... Now, you sing a song the way you can sing a song. And Paul Gemignani, who came out too, he was her musical director and the great musical director arranger in, in on Broadway. I asked him about um, the uh, Rainbow High, which was always difficult for me. Um, it's in a difficult place in my voice. I found it hard. And I said, can I take this into the top of into the top of my range? Can I do I have to? really pushed about this. And he said, of course you can. You've got all that up top. He said, you've got all that. You can do it like that. But I hadn't been allowed to. Right. You know, it's almost like in Australia we have to copy what we think is being done over there. We don't look at a voice and say, this voice will sound really great doing this this way. So, um, and I learnt from Patty too that she, she said, I remember her saying once the musical director, when I walk on, at the beginning of Rainbow High, she obviously found it hard too. And I look at you, I glare at you. That means take it really fast because I'm having trouble. So, you know, I didn't know you could do those sorts of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gave you, gave I, you a I license of freedom. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I learned a lot. I learned a lot from that. Um, the guy who was directing her, and I can't remember his name now, but he, at one stage, I was doing something at the end. And I, I happened to say that she, you know, I was talking about her dying and, and how she was dying of cancer. And um, I said, um, you know, she, he said, she's she's evil, she's nasty. And I said, no, 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 she's not completely evil. This is a girl who really wants something really badly and it's, she's never had anything a whole life and she's going to go after it with every inch of her being. I said she's not, and, and apart from the fact I said she dies in the end of she dies at a young age of cancer, there's a weakness. And he said, Oh, are you a scientist? 
suggesting that I was, say, a Christian, so, you know, something like that. That, And I thought, God, I, I can't win here. You won't even treat me with any sort of respect. And somebody said to me later, don't worry about Marriott. He's got a log. He's got Patty in one eye and a log in the other. He said, you're never going to, you know, you're never going to be anything in his eyes. So I just dealt with that. But I have to tell you, when I actually got to work with Hal, it was magnificent. I didn't get any rehearsal with him at all. We were already in Adelaide where we opened. We were already on stage uh, rehearsing. And I just said to Gail Esler, bless her, the stage manager, Gail, I've got to, I've got to have, I've had no direction. I've been rehearsing this in my lounge room at night to make sure I know what's happening. I've worked with the musical director, but I've had, I, you know, I have no direction. And I said, I need to work with the director. And he took that on board. And so we had one day we did act one and one day we did act two. And I got to the first broadcast and he, um, uh, I got right through. I was in costume and wigs. There was no set. The balcony was some chairs and, and things. But um, I got to that bit and um, I did it and he came running down through the theatre and he said, okay, okay, and he gave me a direction and he went back and I, I did it with the direction and he came back and said, great, thank God you're an actress. And then we started to work and it was extraordinary and he was wonderful. And when it got to the Don't Cry For Me section, even though I was just walk, to walk on chairs, he said, Marriott, remember, this is her Cinderella, Cinderella moment. She, this is everything she's dreamed of. So he was really tapping into that little child and that little child, of my little child, and the dreams of my little child. He said, this is everything she has ever dreamed of. And when she walks on in that big white dress and the violins are playing, this is the culmination of every dream she has ever had. Never forget that. And it, I think I got goosebumps every night, every night that I walked on for that. It was an amazing piece of direction and uh, something I just took on board completely. Um, That's the genius of I, those great directors, knowing exactly what to say to, to fuel an actor's performance. And, and knowing that he could tap into that kid, you know, that, that me, that me. And, and sure, he knew it. I mean, I wasn't an unusual child. It's a, it's almost a, um, a, a parody, if you like, of music theatre kids wanting to, in their lounge rooms, dancing with big dreams. But, um, yeah, he knew that and he knew he could tap into that. And, uh, and the other thing he said to me was, you die well. So <laughs> <laughs> well, I did a good, I, I, I did a good death scene. Um, but, it was, I can't remember any of the other directions, but those, and oh, and the other one, he said, hey, you've got to remember how many people are here. He said, don't constantly look down at the ensemble singing and calling out to you. He said, "These are there are eight, there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people in this square, back beyond the theatre. You've got to see that. Go beyond the theatre and see all those people. Um and that was a, a really nice piece that stayed with me too. The power of that, the power of what what she could do, and how and how you know, in the dream coming true, yeah, she could be evil, she could be maniacal, she could be all those things. But I always believe when someone dies, you have to care. Mm. And um, when I did in Perth, 
and we were without all the whiz-bangery, you know, the screen didn't move. We didn't have movies, we just had slides. Um, for the first time, if I saw somebody, I remember seeing somebody in the bar afterwards and they said, you know, I really cared when you died. I didn't want to. I didn't want to like you because the show is set up not to like her and to like Che. But he, he said, I really cared. And I thought, that's what happens when you take away the whiz-bangery. You've got story and story connects. And as wonderful as that set was, and it was, it was extraordinary. Um, I think it was, it sometimes got in the way of the story. Yeah. All, an amazing woman, you know, an incredible woman. It all gets down to the text, doesn't it? And um, and telling the story, being authentic. Yeah, yeah. And 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 it's a story that we all get, you know. Um, we, we might not like what she did. Um, but she's still revered by some people. Um, and I remember when I was doing it in Sydney and I had to have some photos taken on the QE2, the Queen Elizabeth ship was in the harbour. And I walked on, I walked, I was in a dress. Um, I got changed on the boat, but I had my wigs on already, my white wig on already to have the photos done. And uh, the photographer was Argentinian. And when I walked into where he was, he just went <gasps> like that. And uh, he said, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> he said, I, I just saw her. Yeah. Now, I don't look that much like her, but it was a lovely thing. It was a lovely thing. Yeah. Marriott, it yeah. has also been a lovely thing to watch you relive um, <laughs> two celebrated turns on uh, on the Australian stage. Um, it's extraordinary how you can access those those periods of time. They were obviously so so powerful um, when, when you live through them. So um, it's an insight that that a lot of audience don't really well they don't ever have you know a, a, an insight into the actor's process. And you've uh, describe that so perfectly for us today Thank you. I, I still feel i still feel it i feel all of it i feel all of it um yeah it's it's amazing i know we haven't had time to talk about a way that was extraordinary too but you know when playing when yeah yeah with michael directing yeah. Well, maybe we can do a part two um, next year. <laughs> I'm not important enough to do a part two. <laughs> you are. Everybody's everybody's important. Oh, no, um, no, you've no. all got all got fabulous stories. They're so thank, fabulous stories. So thank you for sharing um, today, and um, uh, I wish you a, a very joyous Christmas with your family, and um, all the best for 2023. Thank you. Who knows what 2023 brings? Hey, could be I fun. Know. Well, it can only get better. The last three years have been a bit ordinary. Well, well, yes, they have. But they've been different and we've learned things. So, you know, next year, something else. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Marriott. Thank you, Peter. Thank you for taking the time. There is always someone of great interest to be heard on the Stages podcast and a variety of roles are explored and celebrated. Looking back through the archives, you'll get access to directors, designers and drag performers, producers, publicists and playwrights, agents and actors, choreographers and casting, emerging talents and established legends, all available to access on Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives about craft and career and what matters to them. 
Thank you to my guest today, Marriott Rubs Donnelly. I'm Peter Ayers. Thanks for listening. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time on Stages. Stages.